Well, let me pray for us as we come to look at John 6. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use me now in my weakness to speak uh, your word faithfully. Father, in the context of this weekend, I pray that you would also grant me to have uh, emotional resilience, uh, not just so that I can save face, more importantly, Lord, so that people can clearly hear your word explained. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, have us see the glory of the Lord Jesus tonight and his great offer of eternal life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I've been reflecting on the contrast between my Saturday last week and my Saturday just gone. Uh, Last Saturday, we took the kids. Am I doing something wrong here? Yes. That one, that one. Oh, okay, it's not coming up. That's where we went. Um, Right, so last week, last Saturday, we went to Ikea. You see, we weren't satisfied with our shoe storage Uh, at home, and so we decided we needed to buy a two-level wall unit to solve the problem. One of the biggest needs that I believed my family had last Saturday was better shoe storage. (laughs) Fast forward one week to yesterday. There I am, sitting in a lounge room, praying with sisters and brothers in Christ, grieving the news that a dear friend of many in the congregation had only in the last two days suffered from a catastrophic stroke. See, what do you think I drove home believing my family's greatest need was after that? Well, I'll give you a clue, it wasn't more shoe storage. You see, the one thing that has been on my mind all this weekend, amidst the grief of so many in our community, is how much we need the eternal life that God offers us in his son, Jesus. See, I suspect there is a deep dissatisfaction in most of us, over the fragile and temporary nature of our bodies and our lives. Ours is a world hungry for life. We hunger for things to be different from the way they are, not frail and fallen, but restored. Not temporary, but eternal. When our passage tonight, we find the answer to that deep hunger. Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life who satisfies our hunger for life. Now, I've broken this very long passage into three main sections that you'll see on the outline. First, we're going to look at the miracle Jesus does as the one who provides bread. Second, we'll consider Jesus' self-identification as the one who is bread, the bread of life. And third, we will look at the distaste of many towards Jesus 
in contrast to the great satisfaction Peter finds in Jesus' words of eternal life. So let's consider the first scene in this chapter. Jesus is the one who provides bread. Now at this point in his ministry, Jesus is experiencing amazing popularity. And it's no wonder, I mean, just think if you saw someone down at the shops healing sickness of anyone who came to him. I mean, you'd be amazed. You'd want to follow him as he walks down from the shops to the local park, then over to the library. And you see, it's the same with the people of Galilee in Jesus' day. Verse 2 tells us that a great crowd of people were following Jesus because they had seen the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And you see, Jesus can't really shake this crowd, can he? I mean, he tries to go and find a quiet moment with his disciples on the mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. But it's not long before a few locals spot him and they alert the masses and he's got many people around him again. Now, I'm sure Jesus is pretty tired at this moment and he probably just wants a bit of downtime with his disciples. But you see, Jesus doesn't really get frustrated or annoyed at these people coming to him, does he? No, he's quite the opposite. Jesus actually has great compassion to this crowd. Now, knowing full well what he's about to do, Jesus actually uses this moment to test, to teach one of his uh, disciples, Philip. He wants to teach him about who he really is. Now, the question is with this, will Philip remember who Jesus is and what he's capable of. Will Philip remember the abundance of wine that Jesus created at Cana? Will he be reflecting on the miraculous healings of so many? So Jesus says essentially to Philip, what do you reckon, Phil? Where are we going to get all the bread to feed this lot? Feed them? I mean, are you feeling okay, Jesus? I mean, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for just each of us to have one morsel, one little bite, verse 7. And just like Philip, the reaction of another disciple, Andrew, isn't too much better. Radio, so we're in the middle of nowhere, with no money, no shops, unless you plan on dividing that little fella's play lunch over there into a thousand pieces... I think you might need to walk back your good intention, Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Look at verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of uh, the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now just let that miracle sink in for a moment. John presents it in just quite a matter-of-a-fact way, but just let it sink in. The NIV heading in my Bible, I'm not sure about yours, reads, Jesus feeds 
5,000. But it was actually likely many more than that. You see, verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men only. But we assume there were numerous women and children there. We know there was at least one boy. I mean, some commentators that I was reading actually believe the number could have exceeded around 15,000. And you see, Jesus made all this food come miraculously from just five little barley cakes and a couple of pickled fish, probably not much more than what you ate for lunch today. See, bread and fish were, were staples in the ancient world. People depended on them to sustain life itself. And these were mostly poor people who had to work to eat. But here Jesus comes along and miraculously provides enough food so that everyone is full. I mean, no one can accuse Jesus of being stingy in this moment. No one goes hungry. You see, just like the wine of Cana, Jesus demonstrates his power to provide powerfully, abundantly, generously, So, right, there's the crowd sitting on the grass, full tummies, and they're all just looking at the one who has just fed them. Now, what are they seeing, or who are they seeing, when they're gazing up at that man? Well, verse 14 gives us some insight to that. It gives us the impression that that they see a man who can give them stuff. And wouldn't it be great to have a bloke that gives us stuff as our king. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. You see their thinking? If this guy can provide us with bread, well, maybe he'll give us other stuff. And maybe he'll be like our great leader, Moses, who not only gave our ancestors bread to eat in the wilderness, but led us out of Egyptian oppression. If Jesus can provide us with bread, maybe he can also give us freedom from Roman oppression. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a a political revolutionary who simply brings freedom for a time in history. And he didn't simply come to provide free lunches day in, day out. No, Jesus came not simply to provide for our material and temporal needs, but our spiritual and eternal ones. He didn't just come to give bread, He came to be bread, the bread of life who satisfies our hunger for life. So let's consider that second big point on the outline. Jesus is the one who is bread. Well, first let's have a look at the sign that is wedged in between the feeding of the thousands and the explanation that follows. Jesus walking on the water. Let's have a look at that sign. You see, this sign, like the previous one, is performed by Jesus to help his disciples 
See him for who he truly is. Now, you may not have noticed it at first, but there's actually one really big similarity between the disciples being stuck in a storm on the sea and that little boy's packed lunch in the previous scene. And here's the similarity. Total inability. Total inability. Just like the packed lunch was totally unable to provide for the thousands, the disciples in that moment are totally unable to provide for themselves and get them out of the storm. They're trapped. They're in the middle of the sea. They're in darkness. And Mark's account of this incident tells us that they're straining at the oars, getting nowhere, unable to row out of trouble. But just like he did with a packed lunch back in the previous scene, Jesus' ability triumphs in the face of inability. You see, effortlessly, Jesus just goes and walks on the water out to his disciples. I mean, their terror at this figure coming towards them only just kind of adds to their hopeless state. But then Jesus speaks, doesn't he? It is I. Don't be afraid. They take him into the boat, and immediately they arrive safely at their destination. Jesus' ability triumphs over inability again. Powerfully, generously, abundantly. Now just kind of picture that scene when the boat is docked at the Capernaum shore. See, in my sort of mind, I see all the disciples kind of huddled to one end of that boat, all looking like drowned rats, with their mouths just hanging open, looking at that bloke at the other end of the boat. Who is this guy? What are they seeing in that moment? See, I think their view of Jesus just got a whole lot bigger. This guy has the power of God. I mean, he just walked on the water in the middle of that storm and and he saved us. In an instant, we went from being there to here. And you see, it's actually that picture of Jesus that we see explained at a much larger level in the next section. See, Jesus is the Son of God who comes into our dark world of sin, into the darkness, to save us by his death and ensure that we who believe in him arrive safely at our heavenly destination. Just look ahead to verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Have them arrive at their destination. See, if you're hungry tonight for life, then just keep listening to what Jesus says next. So let's consider now the words of eternal life that Jesus speaks to the crowd he had just fed the previous day. 
Now, a big question I have kind of throughout this chapter is kind of this. How is it that the crowd who wanted to make Jesus king at the start, in verse 15, is the same crowd that ends up turning their back on him in contempt by verse 66? I mean, doesn't Jesus start talking about the way to eternal life in these next verses? That's good news, isn't it? Why would you want to walk away from that? Well, again, it comes down to the crowd's kind of warped, misunderstood view of who Jesus is. You see, they're still looking at him, but not really seeing Look at verses 26 to 27. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You see, they see just simply a man who can meet their temporal needs for bread at this time. But Jesus wants them to see him as the one who can meet their eternal needs for life, life with God. They need to see in the signs Jesus performed that God has actually placed his seal of approval on Jesus. In Jesus, God is giving them something far greater than another meal, eternal life which will never spoil. You see, when you look at Jesus but don't really see him as the Son of God, well, his words of eternal life are likely to come across as both uncomfortably exclusive and uncomfortably humbling. And that seems to be the case with the majority of the crowd. First, Jesus' words are actually exclusive. The eternal life which God offers to our world is found only in Jesus, you'll note. See, just consider the famous words he says in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, following the exodus from Egypt, God had sustained his Old Testament people in the desert by providing manna for them. They were able to eat that and live. But Jesus is saying that in him, a greater provision from heaven has come. One that sustains life, not just temporarily, but for eternity. He is now the true bread from heaven, verse 32. Jesus didn't just come to give bread, but to be bread. The life God gives is found in Jesus. In fact, by my count, between verses 35 and 40, Jesus uses the words, I, me, or mine, 17 times. Now, I suspect someone's going to tell me after this that it was actually 18 or 16, but the point is, it was a lot. Now, I remember going out for lunch with uh, some work colleagues a number of years ago when I worked in the city, and on this particular occasion, we were discussing uh, my Christian faith. And I remember one of my friends uh, took particular issue with my conviction that Jesus 
was the only way to God and eternal life. Chris, that's the case for you. But others have a different way. Like Buddhists, for example. And you see, perhaps you're here tonight and, and maybe you think in a similar way to my friend at work. Jesus can't be the only way to God. He, he can't be the only way to eternal life. But did you notice the scope of Jesus' claims about himself in verse 33? For the bread of heaven is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the... Oh, just people from Western countries. Oh, a wholesome country folk from Bort. Interested people in Bandura. No, no, Jesus says that he's the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Whether you're from a secular background, a Middle Eastern background, African background, it doesn't matter. You need to come to Jesus for eternal life. Now, I suspect there may be one or two of you who consider Jesus' exclusive claim to be somewhat outrageous. And that's actually certainly how the crowd reacted when they heard these words. And he said, look at verses 41 42. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? See, they're still looking but not seeing. They're thinking, who does this guy think he is? This guy's Joe the carpenter's boy, isn't he? I mean, no mere man can make those kind of claims about himself. But you see, we've seen already, haven't we, twice now that Jesus is no mere man. He fed thousands with nothing more than a little uh, bunch of cheap bread and some sardines. We've seen him walk on water. Jesus can make these claims because he is God. He is the son of God, not simply the son of Joseph. But second, Jesus' words are actually humbling words. They tell us that we cannot save ourselves that eternal life is not something that we are going to be able to earn or achieve. Now, that kind of grates against our pride as humans, the pride in our hearts that say, no, 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 with the right deeds, the right attitude, I can make up for my other failings and I actually can earn my way into God's kingdom. But just think for a moment about the question the crowd asks Jesus in verse 28. You see, Jesus has just told them that they must work for food, not for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And then they ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now look, just imagine if right now I just stopped this sermon. I got in my car... I drove down to Bundura Square and I just started asking people coming out of Coles, what do you think God requires you to do in this life? 
What do you think he wants you to do to earn eternal life? And what must you do? What, what do you think they would say? Maybe feed the poor? Be kind to one another? Well, I suspect there would be many worthy answers that would require us to do this good work or that good work. But I'm willing to bet that you wouldn't get the answer that Jesus gives in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You want to know what God wants from you in this life? What his number one priority for your life is? Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in Jesus. See, here's the thing. The crowd uh, Jesus speaks with, you and I, everyone, we are all like the boys, packed lunch. We are all like the disciples in the storm. We are a picture of inability. See, remember the verdict that was given to us back in John 3.19. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. We are unable to please God or save ourselves because in our heart of hearts, we love darkness. We actually love sin. We actually love acting like we rule, not God. And the sin problem so bad that Jesus tells us a supernatural work of God actually has to take place in our hearts so that we can believe in Jesus. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Jesus repeats this again in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. We are a picture of inability. Unable to save ourselves from the judgment our sin deserves. Unable to earn eternal life. The idea that God helps those who help themselves, well, that's just wrong. God helps those who can't help themselves. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered yourself to be a picture of inability before God. I mean, it's humbling to hear that. But you see, what we've been seeing throughout this chapter is that Jesus is the one who triumphs in the face of our inability powerfully, generously, abundantly. I mean, in verse 51, Jesus tells us how it is that he will give us the life that we can't give ourselves. Just look at what he says, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See, Jesus is speaking here of his death that is to come, his death on the cross as the means by which those of us who trust in him will find forgiveness of sins and receive the eternal life that he's been speaking of throughout these verses. Jesus uses a confronting metaphor of eating his flesh, drinking his blood in verses 53 to 58 to highlight the fact that there is no life Without his death, you need the crucified Jesus to save you, 
more than you need bread itself. You need to believe in him. Jesus came into this world to give us eternal life, and he does this by dying for us and rising again. He takes our punishment on the cross to make us right with God. It's through Jesus' death that he triumphs in the face of our inability. See, at the cross, Jesus generously takes the punishment of our sin. At the cross, Jesus powerfully defeats death by taking away our punishment. At the cross, Jesus achieves an abundant provision of eternal life for all who would believe in him. Generous, powerful, abundant. Verse 57, Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, we don't want just something that will keep us going for the next few days, do we? Or years? Decades? See, we hunger for something that will keep us going for eternity. Shouldn't we be hungry for something that will deal with our sin problem? That will keep us safe on that day that we stand before God on the judgment? Jesus is saying, I am that something. My death makes it possible. Trust in me and I will give you eternal life. I will raise you up at the last day. So what's the response? Well, we see it in the third point. The distaste of many, the satisfaction of one. So let's consider that third point. You see, the passage ends with quite a contrasting response. Many reject, Peter believes. You see, many in the crowd uh, were those who up until this point had actually considered themselves to be disciples of Jesus, not the twelve, but others, people who were willing to follow him. But see, everything changes for them at this point. You see, instead of enthusiasm for Jesus, they start grumbling about him, verse 61. They don't understand his confronting words that he's just given, and quite frankly, at this point, they don't want to understand. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 60. And did you notice that Jesus informs them that he's not talking about literal food, but spiritual food, and they're still not interested. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Still they refuse to believe. See, Jesus in their minds does not have the authority to make such exclusive claims about himself And such humbling claims about them. So from this time on, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer followed him, verse 66. See, tragically, so many who had had their tummies filled with bread actually leave spiritually empty. But Peter's response is different, isn't it? He is hungry for eternal life and believes that in Jesus he will find true satisfaction. 
Jesus asked them, you, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, there is nowhere else to go, Jesus. We know that you're God's only saviour. We know that we're unable to save ourselves. Oh, look, we might not totally understand everything that you're saying at this point, but we trust you. Just yesterday, we saw that you created mountains of bread from a packed lunch. Just last night, you walked on water and saved us. We're not interested in just more of this world, more bread. Like you said, Lord, our ancestors ate manna that Moses gave them and they died. We want to feed on you. We want to believe on you, the living bread, so that we will never die. And with the exception of Judas, the 12 disciples find true satisfaction by believing in Jesus for eternal life. And really, that is what we need to take away from this passage tonight. That true satisfaction is found in Jesus. He is the bread of life who satisfies our hunger for life. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus is calling out to you in this passage not to settle for second-rate food. Real satisfaction is, is not going to be found in the temporal things of this world, but the eternal life of Jesus uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, many of you will know this quote, but he captures it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You see, don't be like the crowd who simply wanted another feed. Jesus came to bring you so much more. Life with God, life forever. You see, just think for a moment. About where Peter is, Right now, according to the promises of this passage, think about where Peter has been hanging out for the past 2,000 years or so. Well, he's been with his Lord, hasn't he? Peter's been in eternal paradise. For the last 2,000 years, Peter has been experiencing no sadness, no grief, no pain, infinite joy. Do you really think Peter would be, would be saying today that what he really needed all those years ago, though, was for Jesus to provide another free lunch? Or a few more years of freedom from Roman rule, or, or for Jesus to give him, like he'd given others, a few more years of good health? No, surely Peter would be saying that Jesus gave him the one thing he needed more than anything else, 
eternal life through Jesus' death. We've got to let Peter's joy become our joy. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we need to keep remembering that sticking it out with Jesus, continuing to believe in him, trust in him for eternal life is what we need to do. It's what we need to encourage each other to do. Because I don't know about you, but I can easily lose sight of the glory of eternal life. I'll give you a classic example. Uh, My life this last week has been consumed uh, with the impending birth of our baby that's due on Tuesday. I find myself thinking about it all the time. Thinking about the new life that is about to enter into our family. Now when I think about that baby, when I pray about that baby, it's actually easy for me to stop at the temporal. Please, Lord, we'll assume it's a she. I've got two girls already. I think God's just saying I'll keep them coming. (laughs) Uh, Please, Lord, may she be healthy. May she have a stable life. And it's right to pray for health, I think, and stability. We want that for our children. But we don't want to forget about the eternal, do we? You see, let's just say we do have a girl. And this baby girl arrives tonight, we'll say. Keep it interesting. She arrives safely, healthy. She comes into our world. Let's assume Ruth and I scrape enough money together to send her to a relatively good school, and she gets a great education, a great job. Let's then say she finds a lovely man of her dreams from the country and gets married. Let's say she has four wonderful children. Let's say she spends the rest of her life well off and well loved by all those around her. If she had all of that but never knew Jesus, she misses out. She misses out on the greatest thing that she could ever have. Jesus, his forgiveness, his eternal life. You see, all of those things, they're nice, but they just don't last. They are food that spoils, as it were. See, they don't meet your need for forgiveness, your need for eternal life beyond this world, Only Jesus meets that need. And that's why even if we are missing out on some of what this world's bread can give us, but we've got Jesus' bread, God's bread in Jesus, we will know true satisfaction. We will never hunger, never go thirsty, as Jesus says. See, we may not be in the the job we really want, we might not, might not have the relationship we want. We may not have had the money saved that we hoped we would by this stage. We might not have the health we wanted. And while all those things are worth uh, praying about, if we have Jesus, 
and believe in his life-giving death for us, we actually have everything. This weekend has been hard for many of us. Many of us have been hit by the tragedy of Suze's condition. And if, even if you don't know Suze, news like this can stir up other forms of grief and sadness. But we've heard in God's word tonight a long passage that we have one who speaks powerfully into that grief. The Lord Jesus, who came and suffered death so that he might satisfy us with eternal life. Uh, following this service, after our formal time together here, Cat uh, and I are going to lead a time of prayer in the corner of the building over there. Feel free to join us. Uh, we want that time to simply be a time where those of you who know Suze can t- continue to pray for her and her family. But this will also be a time when anyone is welcome to come and pray that God would actually keep all of us holding fast to the bread of life who satisfies our hunger for life. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have so much more than what this world can offer. Thank you that in your gift to us, in your Son, you meet our greatest need of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, of true life where we are known by you now and will spend eternity with you forever. Please may this word sink deeply into our hearts, Father. Help us to keep trusting Jesus. And if we do not yet follow him, to come to know that eternal life by believing in him tonight. I pray this in his name. Amen.